hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 54, Pride and Honor. Now that Japanese forces were committed to conquering China, Stalin no longer felt the need to acquiesce to the dictates from Tokyo, as he had before. Boundaries were tested, aid was sent to China, Russian rhetoric became once again belligerent. The shame of the events of the Amur River would not be repeated. Yet for some reason, Japan's attitude, in its desire to continue to agitate Russia, went unabated. Why they did not recognize they no longer had the manpower to chastise the bear while trying to swallow most of China remains a mystery. It may have been their view that the quality of their men dominated the quantity of Russia's men. But still, with the vastness of the two countries, someone in Japan should have recognized the need for a fundamental shift in Japanese dealings with Russia. And now that there was a change, Stalin would do everything he could to prolong this new status. After all, it secured Russia's safety in the Far East. Just one month after the Marco Polo Bridge incident, July 1937, Moscow made it known to Chiang Kai-shek's government that it now had $100 million in credit with Russia for war material. What's more, as the year ended, another $200 million worth of credits was offered up, again, for war material. But equally important, in between those two offerings, Russia and China signed a non-aggression pact. The details were not important. It was the timing that was paramount. Russia made it clear it would not get involved in this land war, but would back China to the hilt. This was because, as Stalin told Chinese special envoy Sun Fo, son of Dr. Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Kai-shek's previous mentor, that Russia acknowledged that China was also fighting Russia's war. So other aid from Moscow included 40 flight trainers and several hundred volunteer pilots. These came over with the first shipment of 200 Soviet bombers and fighters. Now, as staggering a sight as 200 military planes could be flying overhead, these would not allow China to win the war. Instead, this would simply keep them in the fight, keep Japan having to struggle to win while losing men along the way. This Russian credit was the recipe for a quagmire, and that is exactly what Stalin got, much to his satisfaction. So Japan was now bogged down in China, but the Kuangtung army of Manchukuo was not. Their job was to protect their area, and while the war to the south raged on, they watched the growing threat of Russian forces in the area as it grew and morphed into the Red Banner Far Eastern Army. So there weren't enough Japanese forces in China to win outright, and the Kuangtung Army needed every man it had to potentially check any Russian advance there. It was simply a no-win situation. Well, that's not technically true. All Japan had to do was come to an agreement with China, something Chiang Kai-shek would never do. In fact, was willing to lose 50 million Chinese lives, if that's what it called for. Or Japan could normalize relations with Russia. But of the first option, Japan couldn't. And of the second, it wouldn't. 
So Stalin had Japan right where he wanted it, and would go on sending planes, tanks, artillery, advisors, trainers, and of course, volunteers. That is, until June 22nd, 1941, when all that material, and then some, would be needed by Mother Russia herself. Yet there was a double-edged sword to this Russian position. The leaders of the Kwangtung army could see the game Moscow was playing, and their hatred for the Soviets intensified, clouding their already militaristic vision of how problems should be solved. Yet Stalin didn't limit himself to just aiding China militarily. After watching events in Spain for the last two years, a formula of sorts had been worked out. There was also, besides war material and praising the Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek to the skies, the propaganda war. Freedom lovers the world over were encouraged to find their way to China to fight the aggressive Japanese. There was also a message for the European and American governments. If Japan had its way once China fell, then how could their Asian possessions be safe? It was only a matter of time. Wouldn't it be better to fight Japan in China rather than on the soil of one's colony or whatever euphemism you like? But Stalin had other cards to play with as well. As for the U.S., the Russian leader pointed out that surely, as Japan imported so many of its needed goods, if the U.S. simply shut off the valve to the conquering island nation, the belligerents would come to their knees. That this might start a war between Japan and the U.S. was left unsaid, and hopefully unrecognized. Also offered up was good old-fashioned racism. Word spread of the Yellow Peril as the Japanese continued to push their way south and west. Stories were put out that made one think of what the Yellow Men would do to the white women of Europe and the U.S. once the Japanese controlled everything around them. Indeed, every lever Stalin could find was pulled to bring Japan low in the eyes of the world. Because Stalin knew, by the time the deed was done, when Japan was finished, China would also be weakened to the point of a relatively easy political conquest. Other countries giving aid to China, Great Britain, the foreign power with the most land under its flag there, had its own reasons for supporting this first line of defense against Japan. Appeasement may have been the order of the day in Europe against Hitler, and some speculate that Chamberlain was weak or naive to do this, some say he was playing for time, a bit cruelly perhaps, throwing the Czech state to the Nazi wolves, while Britain rearmed, knowing Berlin had an impressive head start. But either way, Britain's best chances of fighting and winning any war was to use the resources of its empire, which meant India, Africa, the Middle East, nor Asia could be wrestled from its grip. Yet the word great within Great Britain did not mean unlimited resources. Yes, they had to rearm, but not to the point of financial collapse, or what was the point? So, with the joining of Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo in an axis, a study in London was put together to quantify what London could spend to get ready for the coming war. It was determined that no more than £1.5 billion could be spent during the period of 1937 to 1941. After that, 
well, the financial and military situations would have to be re-examined. This plan was agreed to by Chamberlain and his cabinet on December 22, 1937, just 10 days after the Japanese forces fired on the HMS Ladybird and the USS Panay on the Yangtze River. But though their ships had been fired upon, simply antagonizing the Japanese with their presence, the British knew they were not ready. Anything London decided that would start a war could possibly see Germany, Italy, and Japan lined up against them. And there was no way, at this point in time, Britain could defend itself against all three. So, as the Czechoslovakian crisis in late September of thirty-eight neared, London's decision was already made. Britain could not stop the Germans from invading the Czech state, so why fight a war? That would only see parts of their empire stripped from them. Okay, that was for the future. But what about now, in late 1937? The news was not good. During that same period, the RAF informed London that if the Japanese seriously desired to attack Hong Kong by air, there was little they could do to deter them. As for the Royal Navy, their findings were even worse. Of the Royal Navy's 15 capital ships, three were in and would remain in dry dock for 18 months, undergoing maintenance and upgrades. And nine of the other 12 had been put to sea before the Battle of Jutland from World War I. So, if Britain seriously meant to challenge or protect their possessions with sea power in Asia, they would have to send over so many of their ships that there wouldn't be enough to safely protect the home island from Germany and Italy. Most of this came down to the ships of the Japanese, Germany, and Italy being newer. And all this limited the ferocity of British saber-rattling in Asia. Yet the British did not back down too much to the Japanese. Yet their stiff upper lip was mostly bluster, and the Japanese knew this. As for Britain's positive prospects, that was twofold. First, now that Japan was launched into China, how many troops could be sent against British possessions? Also, if war did come, the British saw their situation as one of simply outlasting the Japanese. The British would hold on to what they had and hope the aggressors collapsed first in the hinterland of China. As for the United States dealing with Japan during the 1930s, it looked amazingly like Britain's. Bluster, but hollow, but for different reasons. The U.S. could warn the Japanese that their actions would bring dire consequences, but Tokyo figured out pretty quickly that the consequences were only one of words, disappointed words by the U.S. But the isolationist attitude of that country would not allow it to match action with its words. Yet the Japanese did not enjoy this toxic relationship with Britain and the United States. They wanted things to go back to normal. And the only way that seemed possible was to hurry up and end their war, yet victoriously, against China. The idea of simply pulling out never occurred to them. So the Sino-Japanese War would continue, although it brought Japan to the brink of war, a dreaded war, against the United States and Great Britain. It truly seemed to be a puzzle with no solution. What was needed was a system of allies against Germany, Italy, and Japan, 
so no one country would have to put up the resources and manpower for such a fight. But London stayed aloof to Stalin's softly pitched proposals of an understanding. And as the 1930s went by, France aligned its foreign policy with that of London. Apparently, the enemy of my enemy is not always my friend. And since the Great War, Russia followed France's lead, but Paris made it clear it was following London. And this status did not change, which is why Moscow tried to make itself more palatable by establishing relations with the United States and joining the League of Nations. Yet London would no be moved. And of course, there was a downside to London's position vis-a-vis Russia. If Russia could get no one to join with her in a treaty of mutual protection from Nazi Germany, perhaps, just perhaps, Russia could come to an understanding with Nazi Germany. Certainly not as something as grand as a mutual protection pact, but at the very least, perhaps a non-aggression pact. We don't like you, you don't like us, but if we both promise not to attack each other, then many of our nightmares will just go away. At least for now. It was certainly within the realm of possibility, however unlikely. And this British condescension towards Russia helped Stalin realize by 1938 that, forgetting an anti-communist pact for a moment of Germany, Italy, and France, Germany alone by then had the military ability and, equally important, political will to harm Russia. Hitler was strutting upon the stage, and no one seemed able or willing to stop him. That he had Italy's support was of no great moment. But it would have been better if Russia had its own ally, even as one as unenthusiastic as Italy. But there was no one. Which led Stalin to think along two lines. First, he either needed an ally in the West, someone, frankly, to point Hitler at, or second, to come to an agreement with his German nemesis. Again, this seemed impossible in 1938, but Stalin had nothing to lose by pursuing both lines of thought at the same time. So from 1935 to 38, Moscow had been putting out feelers, gauging the interest of London and Paris in an anti-German pact. The answer was always, no thank you, or worse, silence. But after the Munich Agreement, Stalin, who had been shunned from the talks, switched tactics. Instead of asking, almost begging the West for an alliance against Germany, Russia now ignored those capitalist countries, and instead gave speeches that Russia was the strongest country besides Germany in the West, and surely that meant either France or Britain, or France and Britain, were Hitler's next target. Russia had settled its internal matters and was now all the stronger for it. Poor Western powers. Their only chance now seemed to be to beg Moscow for help. But there was one more card for Stalin to play, and that was the one next door. With Czechoslovakia now cut in half, Poland was the last complete country in between Germany and Russia. But relations between Russia and its troublesome Western neighbor had never been anything but bad. But that was about to change. By late 1938, Poland realized it was on Hitler's short list of countries to take next, seeing as how no one was bothering to lift a finger to stop him. Stalin realized this roughly at the same time, and so was receptive 
when the Polish foreign minister came calling. The result was a reaffirming of the non-aggression pact between the two countries on November 26, 1928. But here, as Poland breathed a sigh of relief, thinking the enemy could now only come from one direction, Stalin had already started playing a much deeper game. Tired of not being taken seriously by London or Paris, Stalin had decided to give an agreement with Hitler a real try. But in order to have any chance, he knew he had to bring something to the table. But his hands were empty. Yet a good start seemed to be when officials from Berlin came asking to increase trade in January of 1939. This was said yes to with alacrity. But even this slightly warming of German-Russian relations was really, again, a warning to the Western powers. If there was to be an agreement between those countries on opposite sides of Germany, steps needed to be taken. But again, there only came silence from the West. But for all this smoke and mirrors, a gust of wind came along that seemed to clear away all before it, when, on March 15, 1939, Germany moved against the reduced Czech state. Chamberlain seemed to be honestly shocked by this. So much for peace in our time. And though the Prime Minister had had enough, so too did both major parties in Britain. Action, or reaction, was called for. Moscow was contacted by London and asked what its attitude would be if Germany kept on gobbling up territory. Stalin reacted by saying clearly it was time for a six-party talk, the countries around Germany. But Britain countered with a four-party conference. France, Britain, the USSR, and Poland, as it seemed to be next. But then, embarrassing to London, Poland said, no thank you. It was not about to do anything to give Hitler an excuse to invade any sooner than what he had already planned. Still, enough was enough. Acting very un-British, Chamberlain stood before the House of Commons on March 31, 1939, and announced on his own that Britain would guarantee Poland's independence. Poland didn't know what to make of this. It sounded good, but London's track record of standing up to Berlin was not all that great of late. But the real winner seemed to be Stalin. He would have his rivals fighting each other. However it got started didn't matter. The capitalists of the West versus the fascist. It wasn't of his doing, but the results were the same. Yet within days of his declaration, it dawned on Chamberlain that to back up his announcement, he needed the USSR. But no one trusted the Bolsheviks, who made it clear they were out for world domination as well, just in their own way. So he sought the advice of the last British statesman to rule during war, David Lloyd George. As the two talked, Lloyd George asked how was this announcement supposed to deter Germany. The reply is that they would want to avoid a two-front war. And the other front, rejoined the former Prime Minister? Poland, of course to which Lloyd George allowed himself a deep, pitying laugh. And then it all began to unravel for Chamberlain. Russia was needed as a deterrent, but in case Germany was not cowed, Russia would certainly be needed even more. But then any announcement between Britain and Russia might stir Germany to act before actual men and material could be readied. 
Added on to this, Russia wanted a formal agreement, whereas Chamberlain wanted an understanding. The two could not meet. And the final touch was that most in Britain still could not see their way clear to aligning with the communists. So settled for talking to Moscow just enough so that they would not talk to Berlin. So everyone talked, but nothing was getting done. Then the situation became even more unclear as Germany and Japan talked. Yet they had separate goals. Japan wanted a treaty with Germany to attack Russia, who was aiding China and allowing them to continue to resist Japan. Germany was focused on Great Britain and tried to use British possessions in Asia as a way to tempt the Japanese. But neither one was willing to be the muscle so the other could prosper. So those talks as well limped along. But now Chamberlain had Hitler's full attention. Not only had the Prime Minister requested a peacetime conscription, but he also spoke of increasing Britain's production of arms. This stirring of the British soul led Poland to defy Hitler's demands for a German corridor through Poland and a return of Danzig. Did this mean war was coming to Europe? Perhaps not. Hitler still believed he could browbeat London, Paris, and Warsaw. Yes, one day there would be war, but of his time and choosing. There was yet more of Europe to be gotten without bloodshed. But what if he was wrong? What if Britain really stood up to Germany over Poland, even though they could not literally assist in a military contest? Would he be making the same mistake as had been made in 1914? namely fighting a two-front war, that could not be allowed to happen. So Japan's request for a treaty against Russia was smiled at, but the hand was not shaken. A treaty like that would practically put the Russians and British in the same room. No, the talks were stalled and noncommittal, and this went on until August of 1939. Ironically, Japan desired a treaty with Germany as much as Stalin needed help in protecting Western Russia. That's because of the threats to the Soviet Far East from Japan. Just shy of a year before the Munich Agreement of early 1939, border clashes increased between Russia and Japanese forces. And the reason for this was simply because of the area in which they happened. At one point in the Far Eastern geography, there was a section of land where Korea, Manchukuo, and the USSR was connected. How this was allowed to happen, or was not altered, remains a mystery. By July 1938, as Japan became further mired in China, it borrowed men from the Kuangtan Army of Manchukuo, to the point where they only had six divisions left in the area, and only one in Korea. By that same time, the Red Banner Army of Russia numbered some 20 divisions. Yet the Japanese were not unduly worried, as their soldiers were superior, and as Stalin's purges were still underway, those men had less experienced but more loyal officers to lead them. About 60 miles east by southeast of Vladivostok, and just to the south of the three-way crossroads, was an area where a narrow finger of Manchurian territory separated the territories of Korea and the lands of Russia. The way the geography worked, the Manchurian figure ran south, with Korea on the left or the west, and the Russian land on the right or east, 
And roughly halfway down that finger was a large hill called Chang Kufeng Hill by the Japanese. With its 450-foot rise, it dominated the surrounding area. And what was in that area? To the west, there was a vital Japanese railroad that linked Manchukuo and northern China, the route the Japanese invaders had taken south. But also, just a few miles to the south of the hill was a Russian submarine base. And, as mentioned, the nearby port city of Vladivostok. What's more, of the various heights along the Manchurian Finger, the Russians and Japanese had troops stationed along the alternating rises. Technically, the heights were part of the border, which meant no one was supposed to be on them. But that was how the area had evolved over the years. So this was the situation. There was a point on the map where three territories with their own defensive troops met. Both sides were unsure of the exact boundaries due to different maps being used, and both sides were breaking the spirit of the treaty by stationing troops along the border. And, of course, both sides had something vital within the area. For one, a rail junction, the other, a submarine base and port city. All that was needed was a match to set off this powder cake. And that match was lit on June 16, 1938, when General Jenrik Lufkov, commander of NKVD forces of the Far East, in charge of 25,000 or so men, receiver of the Order of Lenin, a man who had spoken personally to Stalin in great detail about Soviet Far Eastern security, a man who knew the inner workings of the Soviet hierarchy, defected to the Japanese. The reason was simple. With his connections, he discovered that his name was one of a long list of officers in the area to be removed. Did this mean death or transfer wasn't the point. His career was over. So on June 16th, he walked across the open area and gave himself to the Japanese, who, perhaps unwisely, taunted the Russians with this Soviet defection of a high-ranking officer. Yet the true calamity was that, not a month later, a new local commander near Chengkufeng Hill asked for permission to secure the height. Russia had taken enough Japanese flak. This request was picked up by the Japanese counterintelligence. Soon the diplomats from both sides were involved, but nothing was being resolved. Then the leaders of the Kwangtung army heard of what had transpired, and they realized their time had come. Those weak men in Tokyo would not stop them from defending Japanese territory or the honor of the Japanese army.